questions. One is, uh, and we just think about it for uh, taking a test, and there was like, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G answers, like options for answering this question. And the first question is, you know, don't say it out loud, what causes someone to make a mess of their life? What causes someone to make a mess of their life, you know? And what would be the options that you would think would be on the list for you to choose from? We might say uh, you know, bad choices or a difficult upbringing um, or maybe they have some sort of addiction or some sort of uh, genetic uh, issue that predisposes them to something. Um, might have a lot of reasons we would give for what causes someone to make a mess of their life. And then another question would be what causes physical suffering in someone's life? Uh, again, it could be bad choices. It could be uh, something passed on to them from their family. Um, it could be um, environmental things such as you know, toxins or whatever it is, uh, you know, something in the air or something in their environment. And we would have these lists of things um, that we maybe choose from, and it's like, okay, you would choose all those uh, from that list. What you you know you think would cause these things, and this leads us into what our worldview is. Um, Meaning, what is our view of the world? What is our view of how things work? What causes things? What are all the possibilities for what might make someone physically sick? What are all the possibilities for what might cause someone to uh, make a mess of their life? And our worldview is really the lens through which we see everything. It's how we interpret things. And in that, uh, you can also call it our worldview is our assumptions about life that we never even think about. It's our perspective. And so from your perspective, when you're thinking this person's made a mess of their life, it must be A, B, C, or D, or this person has a physical illness, must be A, B, C, or D, that is kind of telling us our view, our perspective, the lens through which we look at life and interpret things in it. And the question for today that we have, you know, this is a really big question, is do you have the same worldview as Jesus? Do you look at life through the same lens that Jesus looks through? Do you interpret events and activities the same way Jesus does? Do you have the same list of options uh, for what would cause someone uh, to ruin their life or cause someone physical illness. We have the same view of the world uh, that Jesus has. And we've been going through this book, you know, Gospel According to Luke, and he answers the question, why did Jesus come? Uh, he answers it in Luke 19.10, to seek and to save the lost, that he's coming to seek out people that are lost and to save them from the condition that they're in. And in the section we're in, uh, chapters 9 through 19, He's taking this journey to Jerusalem, going up with other people who are traveling for Passover up to the capital, and then you know he has his last week of life uh, on this planet during the uh, time when they're celebrating Passover. And so Jesus is on the way to that, and he talks a lot about the kingdom. What is it? What's it like? How can you get in on this? This is what the kingdom is, and he tells parables and stories and corrects people. Uh, but he also comes upon people and ministers to them. And so the chapter we're looking at um, chapter 11, verses 14 through 16. This is the scene that is set up for us that we're looking at today on his way with people you know, traveling around. Verse 14 says, Now he, referring to Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so the scene we come into here is Jesus kind of out in the open, walking around wherever he's at, and he's casting out this demon. This demon caused this person to have a physical issue, that they were mute, they couldn't speak. And so he 
casting out this demon. And this fits in with what Jesus talked about when he gave his like inaugural sermon. You know, we might a president gives their inaugural, you know, address or whatever. And Jesus is, is found in uh, Luke four eighteen through nineteen. And he reads it and he says, um, "I've come to you know proclaim good news to the poor, to set people you know captives free, to um, give liberty to the oppressed, and to you know heal the blind and all these other things." And so we see him doing this ministry of releasing people. He's releasing people from the things that hold them in bondage, that hold them captive, that are oppressing them. And he's setting at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaiming liberty to the captives. And we see that this person, demonic influence in their life was accompanied by the physical issue of muteness. And as we go through this passage, Jesus is going to address um, people's responses to what he does here. And we see from this that there's kind of a, a number, there's kind of different levels of people around Jesus. There's kind of like his core disciples who are like, yeah, we're in. These are the 12 that he sends out on missions on his behalf, the 72 that he sends out on missions on his behalf. So there's like that core. And then there's committed people who have said, yeah, I'm following him, but they're maybe not you know, super core to um, what Jesus is trying to do. Those 12 are the real close core. And there's committed people. But then there's a crowd around that um, of people that are around Jesus for various reasons and get excited. Those were three C words. I've got three more C words to describe who might be in the crowd. You have critics, people who are criticizing him. You have the curious, people are like checking things out. Uh, and then the cured, um, or people desiring to be cured of something, whether it's demonic oppression or whether it's some sort of illness. So you have the core, the committed, the crowd, and within the crowd you have curious, you have critics, you have cured people or people looking to be cured. And we see there's three responses given to, by this, uh, to this heal, casting out this demon in verses 14 through 16. Um, some people attribute what he does to Satan. Some people um, are amazed by what he does. And some people ask for a sign from heaven. And so these, all these responses go together um, in, the, in 14, so starting in verse 14 to uh, verse 36. We're just going to cover the one response today. Uh, people attributing what he does to Satan. He addresses each of these inadequate responses uh, um, as, he go, as we look through this gospel. So these, this passage is connected with others. We're going to focus on uh, people attributed what he does to Satan. And the question is, how does Jesus want people to respond to him? How does he want us to respond to him? Because all three of these groups respond inadequately, and so he addresses and corrects how he, does he want them to respond. And Jesus' view of the world is that there is a strong enemy intent on destroying people and holding them captive. An enemy that we cannot see, uh, that's invisible, that is destroying people. And who is sometimes the cause of someone's condition, either their physical condition or their life being ruined. And so the question for us is, is that an option in your worldview? That when when we ask the question, how could someone make a less mess of their life? And what is causing this physical issue in someone's life? Is one of the options that you would think you could choose from would be a demon or demonic presence or demonic influence? Because that's what he's casting out this demon. And so I want to pause just here and ask the question for you to discuss in your groups. Um, you guys kind of got a little hole there. You can move over if you want, Ed. Um, or someone else can hop back there. The question I want you to answer is, how are demons and the devil portrayed in our culture? How are demons and the devil portrayed in our culture? Books, TV, jokes, etc. Just to give you an example of something I have in mind, Looney Tunes. Sometimes a Looney Tune would die, you know, whatever. Somebody would die, and they'd go to hell, and they would meet the devil. And that's a way that 
the devil and demons are portrayed in our culture. So um, share in your groups how you see that, how demons and devils, the devil are portrayed in our culture.
like the cartoon pictures of uh, yeah. yeah so it's kind of yeah one on your shoulder and cartoony or maybe funny there's even a um, we'll, we'll, we're going to move on a little bit from here but so keep if you have more answers you know you can put them on your sheet of paper but I mean there's even a, sh- a whole TV show called Lucifer yeah. and he's kind of like you know a nice you know sh- you know five o'clock shadow and it's like you know, it's kind of devil's kind of sexy. It's like it's that's kind of it could be a joke or it's maybe somebody you want to be um, or you know all drama or whatever's happening um, with between him and his demons or whatever. And we're going to go through this passage and then we're going to talk a little bit more about demons. We're going to see what this passage says and we're going to talk a little bit more about demons in general. But the focus today is not on demons. The focus today is on Jesus. And as as I was thinking about titles for the sermon, I, the title I did was a stronger one. Because I was thinking about you know dynamics of demons because Jesus kind of gives a like lesson on it. It's like no, this isn't about demons. It's not for us to focus on demons. The focus is on Jesus being the stronger one, stronger than anything that could come against us. And so in verse 15, we saw we read they some people see what Jesus does and they attribute it to being the power of Satan. And then Jesus in verses 17 through 19 tells them why they're wrong. It says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So he's you know, basically, if then, if Satan's divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? This makes no sense. You guys are saying, I'm casting out demons by the prince of demons, the lord of demons, Beelzebul. Um, that doesn't make any sense. Why would, I, why would he even be endorse that? Why would Satan endorse that? Uh, you guys just, he's like, you don't make sense. And in 19, he gives another if-then. Uh, he says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, another name for Satan or the devil, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So he's like, if I'm casting out demons by Satan, then sons, not necessarily literally their physical sons, but they're like disciples, people are following them, is that if they're doing casting out demons by, uh, if I'm doing it by the devil, then what do you have to say about them? If you're saying they're doing it rightly, their source of power is God, then same thing should apply to me. Um, and so in 20 through 22, he says what this really means. Like, you guys are saying it's what's happening here is the power of Satan or the devil. And he said, I want to tell you what you're really seeing happen. Uh, so he says in verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him, and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. And so he says, this is what's really happening. If I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's like this very physical image like, of like something coming upon you. Connor and I, when we were talking about this, like a storm can come upon you, or maybe a big wave can come upon you. And it's just like you're seeing the kingdom of God invading your life right now. It's becoming present. It's breaking in. Like, God's kingdom, if this is by the power of God that I'm casting out demons, it's like he's taking territory, right? It's like this is the territory of Satan, and now the kingdom of God has come upon you and has taken this territory for God. And some of this language echoes what was talked about in the Exodus. The people of Israel enslaved for hundreds of years, and then God says, I'm going to act on their behalf. And he comes in, and with the, the wording used is with an outstretched arm, with his mighty arm, steps into this situation where his people are enslaved, and he takes them out. And that's how the, you know, the finger of God coming upon them, that uh, relieving people of being uh, 
of being enslaved and oppressed. And Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, sees the works of God but hardens his heart uh, and doesn't respond to it. Just like these critics here are seeing the works of God but hardening their hearts. Like, oh, it's, you know, he must be doing this by the devil because they don't want to draw the conclusion, well, if he's casting out demons by God's power, that must mean he's approved by God, that he's doing God's work. And they don't want, they're avoiding that conclusion. But Jesus is saying, this is God at work, that outstretched arm. This is the new exodus, God coming in and relieving his people from their oppression and their captivity and with his power bringing them out. And then he says in 21 to 22, someone stronger than Satan is here. Someone stronger than the devil is here. And it's like Jesus is, uh, it's like Satan, you know, you can take this one of two ways. Is the person the palace that Satan has taken up residence in? Or is it that Satan has brought people to his palace and is holding them captive? You know, either one, Jesus is doing this, uh, it seems like he's doing this eviction campaign of like, hey, you've got to get out. You can't be in here anymore. Or if, there, if it's people residing, uh, this guy had a demon inside of him. So it's like he's giving this eviction notice, get out. Uh, you're no longer welcome here. And then, uh, or it's like he's going into uh, the devil's you know, palace and bringing people out. Those are his spoils that he's bringing out uh, from where the people are held captive. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no gate that hell can put up that Jesus can't go through and take people out of that influence. And so he, we see Jesus doing both, both proclamation and demonstration of his kingdom, that he's proclaimed, I've come to say, bring good news, and uh, God is returning and he's going to liberate his people. And this is a demonstration of that, that I am, this person's been liberated, that now they are set free. And then he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So it's, are you with me or against me? Telling these people, you're saying I'm doing this by the devil. And let me tell you, that doesn't make sense. If it's by the finger of God that this is happening, then the kingdom has come upon you. So which is it? Whose side are you going to be on? God's or against God? It's like, which side are you going to choose? And there's no neutral ground in, you know, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of the sun. It's, there's no Switzerland. He's like, it's one or the other. Which is it going to be, guys? Like, if you're speaking against me in the spirit... Then you're against God. Like, what do you want to, where do you want to stand with this? Um, you're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God. And I think that's a hard thing for us to, to swallow because we might feel like, well, what are all those nice people in my neighborhood, or all those nice people at work, all my relatives, like, they're not devil, demonic people. Like, how could it be one or the other? But Jesus is like, which, you're in one, you, you got to choose which one are you going to be in. So I just want to take a moment to interact about this image that Jesus gives about the strong man, that he's saying there's a strong man who's holding people captive, and that he's saying, I'm the stronger one coming in and ripping off his armor and then bringing people out. And I want you to try to put yourself in the perspective of the person who is in the strong man's palace being held captive. What would it be like to be held captive, basically in Satan's castle, and then what would it feel like for... Jesus to come in and bring you out of that. So what would it be like to be that captive in the strong man's house and then to be rescued by someone stronger? So it's like an exercise and put yourself in those shoes. Just take, you know, talk with your groups. What would it be like to be to be a captive in the strong man's house and then rescued by someone stronger?
we just had her you had a little like strong, you know, but don't do it all on
people who just grew up in an abusive family, and it's like, um, they don't know anything different. The, the, could it, this is normal. Like, what do you mean? That could not be like this. And I think sometimes we can be, uh, we can relate to maybe the, um, if you don't, I can't relate to any of those physical things, or maybe even being a person who's like, yeah, I was living in darkness, and Jesus brought me out. Um, it's kind of hard for me to relate to that because I don't feel like I grew up in that sort of environment or got into that. But I, I know there's been times in my life where it was like all of a sudden I was like, I was totally in the dark about what God is like or about how he sees me. And like times when it was like I was living out this reality of like God disliking me, that he's wanting me to perform to earn something from him. And then having realizations, even after being a Christian, of being like, oh, it's not that way. Like this is such good news. And like there's a relief and liberation and being set free. Um, and so there's you know lots of ways we can be in the dark. In the next verses, he does kind of like a, it's almost like an excerpt from a textbook on demonology. Um, in verses 24 through 26, Jesus says, uh, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so it's like, okay, let me tell you how demons work. Like, here's their habitat. Here's their activity. You know, he's kind of like getting in this uh, demonology textbook. Um, and the thing he talks about is they're looking for a place to dwell. And this view is very common in, in Judaism. And you see, like, in the pigs in Luke chapter 8, where he's going to cast out these demons from the guy who has a legion. It's like 5,000 soldiers. And they're like, don't, you know, don't send us away. Send us over to these pigs. It's like looking for a place to like kind of attach themselves to, for their presence to be oriented around. And I've heard stories of people talking about it could be even an object, an inanimate object of like that thing. That thing's presence in someone's life was uh, bringing demonic influence. And once that got removed, like uh, it, it left. And so what happens to someone who's released, but who doesn't repent? I think that's what the picture is here, is Jesus, the first part, he's like addressing the people that are criticizing him. And then here he's talking about like these, um, healing these people, casting out demons. Um, and now he's describing a situation where someone has had a demon cast out of them, but they didn't respond with repentance. It was like they benefited from Jesus' ministry of releasing people, um, but they didn't turn to him. They didn't turn their lives over to God. Um, you see, other situations like this where Jesus cleanses ten lepers of leprosy and only one expresses gratitude. And it's very easy for us to just say, I want the benefits, but I don't really want you, God. And he's describing the situation. Um, there's people in the crowds around him, right? There's people he's releasing from de- disease and demons and even death, some people he raises from the dead. Uh, but he says, none of that's going to help you long term unless you repent. You're released, but you aren't restored. That's Jesus' ministry. I'm releasing people and restoring them to relationship with God. But people have a choice after he releases them. Not everyone responds with gratitude and laying them down before him like the guy with 5,000 demons. That guy's just like, let me come with you. I want to follow you. And then Jesus says, no, I want you to go tell the people you know about what God has done for you. And then he says, yes, I'll do it. So that guy gets the demons out and he responds. But he's saying there are people that don't. And so release without repentance results in ruin. Is that your condition is worse than it was before. Uh, that now this guy has seven demons. And it, it seems to be that experiencing the power of God without repenting can be rever- worse than not experiencing it at all. Is that uh, he's talking about, it, it's like this kind of ingratitude where you've experienced the power of God liberating you, 
makes you even more open to greater darkness in the future. That there's a hardness there, a hardness of heart of like, God has done this thing for you, and you've experienced this power, and yet you still were just like, oh, cool, thanks, I'm just going to go keep living my life. And he's saying that kind of ingratitude hardens you, makes you more vulnerable to uh, demonic influence in the future. And so what the, the cure for, the, you know, the long-term cure is that uh, a new tenant prevents re-entry. Is that if you, the one tenant, the demon gets evicted, um, but you don't welcome another tenant into your life, namely the Holy Spirit. Remember, two weeks ago, he's teaching, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. In verse 13 of chapter 11, he says, uh, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then immediately goes into this story about uh, casting out a demon and then talking about a demon being taken out, but nothing being replaced. Like, oh, if your house is in order, sweet, demon's gone. It's like, what you should want is you've lost this unclean spirit, this evil spirit, but now let's invite the Holy Spirit in that a new tenant prevents re-entry. And the demon not only needs to be removed, but replaced. So let's talk a little bit more about just demons in general apart from this passage. And there's one, uh, J.I. Packer uh, wrote a book called Concise Theology, and it's like two pages for a whole bunch of doctrines and teachings. And he talks about how the level and intensity of Jesus' encounters with the demonic were unprecedented before his time and ever since after his time now. Uh, that he, it was just like him being there uh, drew them out, drew that sort of conflict. And we see that demons have knowledge and strength. They inflicted or exploited physical and mental issues. They recognized and were afraid of Jesus. And we notice that Jesus has no elaborate ritual to get this demon out. Like, okay, guys, you know, give me a couple chicken bones, you know, give me some of you know, whatever, we got to do this thing, and then we're going to make this happen. No, it's just Jesus just tells them to leave. And that was in contrast to what uh, other people did. Um, you can look back, I think it's Luke, it's later in Luke 4. Uh, I did a message on it um, a year and a half ago or whatever, talking about these elaborate rituals people might do. And people were amazed that Jesus says, get out, and they get out. And so he, he just has the authority. And then he also authorizes his disciples to cast out demons in his name, which would include us, that he has given all his disciples the charge to go, you know, based on my all-encompassing authority, go and make disciples of all nations, including releasing people from captivity to demons. And in his book, uh, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, uh, Richard Lovelace gives these five characteristic strategies of Satan. The one is temptation. Uh, Satan's called the tempter. And temptations are temptations because they look good. Uh, think of a fishing lure. It's made to look like the real thing. So a fish is tempted wants to eat it. So temptation, he, the devil is called the tempter. Second, deception. Revelation 12.9 says he's the deceiver of the whole world. Uh, he's the head over the powers of darkness. Darkness being out of the light, being in the dark. Uh, um, what God is really like, living in lies. He wants to, everyone in the world to embrace lies about God. That's what we see in Genesis 3. That's how he got Adam and Eve to be tempted by the fruit, is that they embrace the lie about God that he didn't have their best interests in mind. Third, accusation. Temptation, deception, accusation. The word devil meet, uh, is diabolos, which means slanderer. A slander is speaking you know, badly about someone. And so there's three ways he can uh, bring slander about. One is magnify the defects of Christians to the world, which would result in persecution of the world, seeing Christians as 
bad and wrong and needing to be pushed down. So magnifying the defects of Christians to the world. Secondly, by magnifying the defects of Christians to one another, which would bring division, so it's persecution, division, like if we're all fighting, just seeing what's wrong with the other person creates division. And thirdly, attacking Christians about their own defects, which is discouragement or despair. So temptation, deception, accusation, and then possession. And let me just read what Richard Lovelace wrote about this. He said, there's no special word for this phenomenon in Scripture. The New Testament uses demonization for any affliction with a satanic origin. But the Gospels plainly describe a condition in which human victims come almost helplessly under control of alien personalities. So possession. Lastly, physical attack. Temptation, deception, accusation, possession, physical attack. Satan in John 8.44 is called a murderer and in Revelation 9.11 called a destroyer. And he can do this directly by causing illness, uh, but not all illness is demonic. Jesus could tell the difference. Sometimes he's casting out a demon that has a physical issue associated with it. Sometimes he's just healing someone of a disease or a physical issue. Uh, so he can cause uh, destruction by directly by causing illness, or indirectly he can afflict, destroy, and murder through the structures of injustice and oppression, uh, the systems and structures of our world. You see this in Revelation 9. It's like this, the Christians are... Not Revelation 9. The whole book of Revelation, you see Christians are coming under this pressure and they're being attacked. And uh, what happens is Jesus pulls back the curtains for John and says, look who's really behind all this. This is Satan trying to defeat God's people. And so a question we need to answer is, how do we know when a demon is involved with a particular person or a particular issue? What, what's the, when we're coming to somebody, we ask at the beginning, what's the cause of this person ruining their life? What's the cause of this person's physical issue? And what's difficult is the symptoms of demonic influence are the same symptoms of other causes, that it's really hard to separate it. It's like there could be multiple things happening at once, multiple factors, and it can't just be like, this is happening, that's a symptom of demonic uh, influence, and therefore it's a demon. It's like, well, no, that could also be a symptom of something else going on, too. Um, symptoms from a mix of causes. But the worldview that Jesus in the New Testament gives us includes demonic as a potential cause for someone ruining their life, someone making a mess of their life, or someone who just seems like it just seems like they're held captive by something they can't get out of it, or a physical issue they're having. And C.S. Lewis famously said this: uh, "There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence; the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased." by both errors. So one error is to not believe in the demonic. The other is to believe in them to the extent that we have an unhealthy interest in them. And they're happy with both because it, it can be, if you aren't, people aren't aware of you, you're covert, you're a spy, you're, you know, you're, under, you're undercover. Um, if people are interested in you, then it's welcoming into you. And the New Testament uses battle language all over the place to describe the Christian like even Jesus here, the kingdom of God, a kingdom is a you know a military entity, uh, can be has an army. And it's like the kingdom of God is coming upon you, booting out this other person who's in this territory, and that it's saying no, this is no longer yours. This is, belongs to God now. And since all this battle language is used for the Christian life, is it any wonder that it often feels like life is like we're living on a battlefield, death and suffering uh, and pain and loss and conflict? In fighting. It's like we're living on a battlefield. It feels like the world's against us. 
And it's because it is. That now it's a world held captive by Satan, being influenced by him to destroy all things that are of God. And there's only two kingdoms, and everyone is part of one or the other, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God. Every person you meet is one or the other. There's no people being Switzerland. I'm just kind of in between. I haven't chosen a side. By not choosing a side, you've chosen a side. Uh, It's that you can't. It's one or the other. And the reality is that if you call yourself a Christian here today, you were under the influence of Satan, whether you recognize it or not. That anybody who now says, Jesus is my Lord, was once saying, Satan is my Lord, whether you ever acknowledge that or not, but it, and all through the Bible it's described, you know, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that before these people were rescued by God, before the Ephesians were rescued by God, they were children of wrath, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the world, Satan himself, that everyone is a follower of Satan if they're not a follower of God. And every day we encounter the kingdom of darkness. All things that are ungodly, all things that are anti-God, find their origin in Satan and demons. And every day you encounter the effects of satanic influence. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that those who have not turned to Jesus are blinded by the devil to not be able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That every single person who says, yeah, Jesus isn't for me, and maybe that's, that's probably more common for you than, like, I hate Jesus, I love the devil. We probably more often see people just yeah, he's not really for me, that's, that's good, that's your thing. They're blind. If they saw who Jesus really is, they would have no other choice but to just fall on, down on their knees before him and say, yes, I want you as my king. But every person who's like, Jesus isn't for me, they're under satanic influence, like Corinthians 4.4. 4. Lies about God started in Genesis 3. Every lie you believe about God has its origin in Satan coming to Adam and Eve, the first humans, and letting those lies spread throughout the world. And our sinful nature is a result of turning from God. The worldly systems and structures. And so Satan sometimes does frontal attacks or covert attacks. In the United States, probably more often covert because we don't really think about the dark. But other countries, I mean, there's, you know, people are casting out demons. They're encountering, uh, missionaries talk about it as truth encounters or power encounters. And often here, we're like working on truth encounters. And uh, instead of people in other countries, it's like they are worshiping all these, you know, animalism and paganism. And so they've opened themselves up to that influence. And now they have these power encounters where it's like the demons get cast out. And whether it's front stage or backstage, Satan is the director. Whether you see it out in front or working behind the scenes, Satan is the director. And so, should we be aware of Satan? Yes. Should we be afraid of Satan? No. Because Jesus is the stronger one. And this is the big idea for today. Jesus is stronger than anything against us. Very simply. Jesus is stronger than anything against us. So, you know, complete that. Jesus is stronger than demons, death, disease. Jesus is stronger than the world. Jesus is stronger than uh, the people who may want to give up our faith. And he comes in, he plunders Satan's house. He brings liberty and freedom to those who are captive and oppressed. He's he rescues, he saves, he's our, you know, our redeemer. And his desired response is that we would repent. When that happens, that we would repent and that we would turn to him, turn to the one who is stronger than anything that has held us captive. And I just want to quickly share you know, three ways. How can we repent? When we feel like we're in the world and it's like, you know, for you're maybe like me, where it's like, I don't know if I really count the demonic. What I was trying to get across in this is, even if it's not forthright, it's still the influence of demons. And so three things of how we can 
trust him that Jesus who's the stronger one. Authority. Jesus is the stronger one. He's given he has all authority in heaven and earth. He's given that to us as his representatives. And so we can rest in his authority. And we can look to the Word of God, the Spirit, we can pray to him. So authority is how you can trust in the one who's stronger. Second, the armor of God. And we're told to stand firm uh, against the powers of darkness, wearing the armor of God, truth, righteousness, uh, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, uh, the word of God as our sword, is that we have Jesus' authority, we have Jesus' armor put on us that he's purchased for us, and as we rest in that authority and have that armor protecting us, lastly, it's resist the devil. And that is really interesting that there's two different books for that phrase that said, resist, resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 7 through 8. 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist the devil and he will flee. Isn't that, I mean, it just seems so simple. Like, what do you mean resist him and he will flee? Like, we would think it takes a little more than that, right? Just resist him. You don't have any place here. Like, this isn't, I'm not for you. I'm with somebody else and I'm wearing his armor, sending his authority and he's gone. You know, it's like as easy as that. Resist the devil with faith and he will flee. What we see is that God brings his kingdom through Jesus, and Jesus brings God's kingdom through us, through his church, through his followers, his representatives. Jesus builds his church. How? The gates of hell not prevailing against it is that he is going into uh, Satan's palace, Satan's territory, and bringing people out, you know, doing these missions where it's like, no, I'm taking these people, they're mine, Uh, they belong to me now. And that he plunders the kingdom of darkness to populate the kingdom of God, is that he takes the people out that Satan has held captive. In Colossians 1, there's just this great image that says, um, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's like, that was true of me. I was in the kingdom of darkness, and I've been transferred into the kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so one action step. And I was thinking about this. It's like, is the action, <laughs> the call to action from this, you know, go out and cast out some demons because Jesus says you can. Um, and that doesn't, doesn't really feel like that would pay, you know, we'd probably spend a whole day talking about something like that. But I think what would be a great action step is to change how you pray. And when you're praying for other people or praying for yourself, praying against the powers of darkness, that this person's physical issue that you're praying for or this person making a mess of their life, it's like, let's bring in Jesus' worldview and his worldview and his perspective on things he shows us demons may be the cause of somebody ruining their life or somebody who's living and suffering um, physically. And so bring it into your prayers, praying against the demonic. And I just wanted to read a couple verses from Ephesians 6 that really uh, give us the perspective and the worldview of the Bible. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So anybody you're praying for or trying to minister to or help or ask, trying to help them follow Jesus, it's like, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You are wrestling against the powers of darkness. And so we should pray against that. Um, I, I rarely pray against that. And I'm hoping that as a result of this passage, being like, do I want to have, do I want to view the world like Jesus does? Yes. Therefore, I should be aware of this um, reality.